Hi, my name is Scott and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website www.RestoredTemecula.Church and click on contact. We also have a mobile app with resources including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoyed the message. I love you guys. Alright everybody, good morning. My name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors here of Restored Temecula and I want to welcome you to our Sunday gathering. Uh, what a morning that was. I feel like I don't know how to step into this pulpit after that. I was just pass the mic to all the youth and have them uh, give testimonies of what God's been doing in their life. But, um, but here I am. So we're going to continue this morning with, actually we're not going to continue a preaching series called Priesthood, although if you haven't been around for that, it is fantastic, it is fire. Check out those sermons. Uh, today there's just been kind of a text that's been stirring up in my heart for the last little while that I want to share out of, and it's in the book of Numbers, which, how many people have been in the book of Numbers this year? Two, three. All right. So I've been in Numbers for the last like six weeks. So prepare yourselves. I'm going to go ahead and pray and then I'll dive into this morning's message. Uh, Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for your gracious love for us that was on display this morning. I loved hearing Yeah, my brothers and sisters, encouraging one another, building each other up to continue to press into what you have for them. Father, I pray that the same kind of thing that happened this morning here on this stage would happen even now. It's an encouragement from from a brother to, to grab hold of you, to seek you, to pursue you, to not let anything get in the way of all that you have prepared for us. Because the life that you have for us, it's risky but it's good. You can't have reward without risk, and faith in a lot of ways is risk. And so I thank you that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. May we be a people who seek you, even in the hard moments. God, we love you and we thank you. Should your name we pray, amen. Go ahead and start my timer. Awesome. All right. I've been thinking about this, this uh, message this morning. I've come to a realization, I've had a lot of time actually to reflect on my own life, not just the text, but also how it intersects with my life. And I've come to the conclusion that life is a series of fork in the road kind of moments. Uh, there are moments that we go through regularly, periodically, where we, we find ourselves at a fork in the road where we, we kind of have to make a decision, a moment of decision, a moment of choice. One of the Maybe the first fork in the road moment that really impacted me took place in college. I was 18, 19, 20 years old. I forget exactly how old I was. But I had had a couple of experiences late in high school that really opened me up to the possibility that God was real and that he desired me. I went to a couple different retreats in high school. One of, during one of the retreats, it was a bunch of adults sharing their life stories with, with high school kids and sharing how they went through really difficult, painful, messy things, but that they found hope in the midst of it through Jesus. And that was something that I had never really heard before. And so I was like drawn into that. 
Uh, the second one was a retreat that I did as a senior in high school. And it was actually facilitated uh, in part by my peers. So there were people in my senior class who actually courageously shared their story. With, if you can imagine what that's like in high school, to share your story with, with your high school peers. Uh, it, it was very courageous. And similarly to the adults that I had heard at a previous retreat, these high schoolers were telling me, hey, I've been through hard things. A lot of stuff that I didn't even know that they had been through, even though my classmates, my peers, they went through difficult things, but they found hope in the midst of it. And the reason for their hope was Jesus. So I had these kind of two unique experiences. I myself wasn't a follower of Jesus, but I was open. I was interested. And so I went through several years of grappling with what that meant. And ultimately, there was a fork in the road moment that I experienced when I was in college. And I'll never forget it. I was in one of the dorms at my school. I went to USD. It's a very small little Catholic school in the Mission Valley in San Diego. It's beautiful. You can see it from the five freeway. It's like a little Spanish fortress. And I was sitting there in one of the dorms, and I was across from my, my girlfriend at the time. And it became very, very clear to me that I had to make a choice about where my life was going to go. There was, leading up to that, a series of events that I went through that I couldn't describe in any other way other than to say God was clearly after me. The retreats were one thing. I went to college. I was outside of my parents' house. I kind of got to figure out what do I actually believe for myself. And there were these guys on my floor who were on my freshman floor who were convinced that God wanted something. He wanted to give me like a new life. And they were, they were lovingly but consistently putting that opportunity to follow Jesus in front of me. It was really remarkable like in hindsight. That takes a lot of courage too, to do that on a college college campus. Even though it was a Catholic school, I'd say the vast majority of us had no idea what we believed. Uh, most of us were not following Jesus. But these guys were putting it in front of me. And I remember I went to a Bible study uh, one, one night, and it felt like the preacher was just speaking to me. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, where you're, like, you're in a crowd, but it's like, oh, he's talking to me. And I don't remember what the content of the message was, but I just know that it was like God saying, okay. I've been here the whole time. I'm inviting you to follow me. You're going to do it. And I felt like for the first time in my life, I'm like, yeah, it's time. It's time to do it. And so I went back to my dorm, and I started talking to my roommate. Now, my roommate and I got on so well. It was one of the happiest coincidences of my life was that I was actually supposed to be in a two-person dorm as a freshman. But USD over, I don't know how they did this, but they overbooked their dorms. So we ended up having three people and a two-person. Uh, no discount for that. Uh, and they're still calling me for money. So go figure that one. Uh, but it just so happened I have a twin brother. So my twin brother and I were like, we're, we were going to live together in the, in the dorm. We went to the same school. And then they added a third roommate. And this was my friend Ryan. And I love, love him. Uh, he and I had never really talked about anything spiritual before. But that day when I got home from that, from that Bible study, I really felt like God had been pursuing me, calling me, and I felt like I, I gave him like a, a yes. Uh, we, I ended up telling him what happened. And for the first time in my life, like I started sharing about Jesus. I mean, this was like instant. I just started sharing about Jesus with my roommate. And it didn't go half badly, actually, which was really interesting. But at that point in time, I was in a relationship, 
It was a relationship that was not centered on Jesus. And so I knew, okay, I'm going to have to sort this out. And at that point in my life, uh, that relationship was probably like the biggest thing. It, was, it felt like the most important thing to me at that time. I, put, I feel like I put like all my eggs in that basket. And so when I went to, the, to my girlfriend at the Times dorm, I told her what happened. And I was like, I think Jesus is calling me to follow him and you too. And her response was, was, I don't know who you're hearing from or what you're talking about, but where you're going, I'm not going. And so that became, and I don't think fork in the roads are usually this clear, to be fair. Uh, but but it, this was the culmination of a series of fork in the roads in my life with respect to God saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. And so there I was, as a, as a I don't remember if I was a sophomore or junior in college, whatever it was, in the fork in the road moment, was there, and it was very simple. It was like a trust or turn away. It couldn't have been more stark. Why am I mentioning this? There's clear instances in the scripture, throughout the scripture, of sort of like trust or turn away moments. Uh, Sometimes you hear the word trial, and a trial is a situation that reveals the truth about what we trust in. That's what a trial is. And a trial leads to a fork in the road, inevitably. We're going to look at a fork in the road moment that the people of Israel had. And if you're new and if, if, if the Bible's due to you, welcome. Really excited that you're here. The people of Israel were the people that God had called to himself uh, in the Old Testament. And he had given them like a mission to make him known in the world. And God called them out to himself graciously uh, the nations had actually turned away from God at this really, really tragic event called the Tower of Babel. The next chapter in the Bible is, is Genesis 12, and what does God do? He calls one person, his name is Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless the nations through you. And so God was committed to this man and to this man's family. And I can't get into all the details, but basically what ended up happening is that this man who had a, a wife that was barren ended up having children way past the age of childbearing. And God began to deliver on that promise. I'm going to bless the nations through you. And so one of the things he was going to do is he was going to give this this family a land of their own. And he was going to be their God, and they were going to be his people, and they were going to have a land, and they were going to be the lights to the nations. The whole world was going to come to know God through them. However, just like everybody that follows Jesus now knows, like you have these fork-in-the-road moments between trusting and turning away from him. And that was the kind of situation that Israel found themselves in frequently. It started with their father Abraham, who had this crazy promise, I'm going to give you children, even though your wife's infertile, and even though she's 90 years old, which is pretty, pretty wild if you ask me. If God was, to, God was to show up and tell me that, I'd be like, I'd start check, I, I want to check myself to make sure that I'm, that I'm okay, like mentally, that I'm all there. But God makes outlandish promises, but that here's the thing, he delivers on them. He delivers on them. And the people of Israel, the story I'm going to read, you to, to read to you today, they had seen God come through in outlandish ways over and over and over again. The shining example is God's delivering of his people out of Egypt. If you don't know the story, the people of Israel had made their way into Egypt. It became like an amazing place for them. God blessed the people of Israel. God blessed the Egyptians through this guy named Joseph. Check it out sometime. It's in Genesis. Can't get into it now. But ultimately, what ended up happening is There was a new ruler that rose up in Egypt who didn't know anything about God, anything about Joseph, and he started to enslave the people. 
So the people were groaning under slavery in Egypt. And what happened is God heard their groans and delivered them and rescued them. And it wasn't just to get them out of Egypt, it was to take them somewhere, to the promised land. A lot of us have heard about like the promised land. It was actually applied to the angels when they went to the World Series, which was really fun. <laughs> Heaven in seven. And then when they won, it's like the promised land. I was there in Anaheim. That's, this has nothing to do with my message. I had to sweetly reminisce about the good old days. <clears throat> so, so let's ke- catching up to the story here. The people of Israel have been on a journey. They're going to the promised land. God has, has pro- he's told them, like, I'm going to be your God. This is going to be your land. You're going to be my people. It's going to be great. But Israel hits a fork in the road in Numbers 14. And we're going to turn over there to Numbers 14. Before we do, I just want to give you a little bit of context very quickly out of, out of Numbers 13. So if we can turn over to Numbers 13, verses 17 to 20, here's the setup for Numbers 14. God had told Moses, Moses was the leader of the people of Israel. And God had told Moses, send one, basically send leaders one person who is a leader from among each of the ancient tribes or the ancestral tribes to go scout out the land that I'm going to give you. And then in Numbers 13, verses 7 to 20, it recounts what happened. It says that Moses sent them, these, these, these spies, to go into the land of Canaan to scout it. Okay, the, the land of Canaan was where God was going to take his people. And he told them, go up this way to the Negev, then go up into the hill country, and then go see what the land is like. Go scout it out. Go check it out. Um, some of you, if you work, like your work calls you to go scout out locations, right? They were going to scout out this land that God was going to give them. See what it's like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, okay? So there's people that inhabit this land. God's going to take them into this land, but there's people in that land right now. So check out, are the people strong or weak? Are there a lot of them or just a few of them? Is the land they live in good or bad? Are the cities they live in encampments or fortifications? This is a fortified city. Is, is the land fertile or unproductive? Are there trees in it or not? Check everything out. Oh, and by the way, be courageous. This is going to be a little scary for you. Be courageous, okay? And then bring back some fruit. So that's what they do. And they bring back this fruit. And the fruit, it's, they just cut like one, uh, this is where my lack of, one branch of grapes, cluster of grapes, that's what it is. A cluster of grapes, thank you. And what they end up doing is it's such, it's such a huge cluster that they have to carry it between two people. Have you ever seen a cluster of grapes that big before? No. What does that tell you about the land? It's pretty but freaking amazing. That's what it is. <laughs> right? So let's go to Numbers 13, verses 27 to 33. I'm going to read the report that the spies gave to Moses. They reported to Moses, hey, we went into the land just like you told us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey. And here's this big cluster of grapes. Amazing, right? Verse 28, however, this is the dot, 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 the but. The people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hethites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live in the sea along the Jordan. So all these people that we've either had beef with or were freaked out by, they're all there. And they're huge. 
Verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses. So this is somebody who rose up. This is one, one of the spies that went into the land. And he said, hey, don't sweat it. Like, we can, we can take this land. We can certainly conquer it. There's 31, but, dot, dot, dot. The men who had gone up with him responded, we can't attack the people because they're stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land that they had scouted. The land will devour us. Basically, like, we go in there, we're going to get devoured. Whereas Caleb had said, we go in there, we're going to devour them. Okay? All right. So there's tension, right? What's the tension between? There's this reality that God gave the people a promise. He said, I'm going to take you into this land. Go scout it out. Go check it out. Go see what it's like. And then out of the 12, out of the 12 spies that went, 10 of them give this report. Yeah, there's great grapes, but dot, dot, dot. It's terrifying. And we're going to catch up with Joshua. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who actually said, let's not freak out about this. Let's go in. So Israel was in a fork in the road moment. Fork in the road moments are hard. They're situations that are scary. The situations where you feel vulnerable. They're situations that feel overwhelming. And sometimes they're big, like this one, where it's like you're going to go into this land. Sometimes they're smaller. But either way, there's these little vignettes during our lives that play out where we have to make a decision to trust God or turn away from him. And Israel was in such a place. Now, if you haven't read the story up to this point, from the beginning of the Bible, we see a theme emerge that God desires to work with people. He desires to work through people. He desires to basically bless all of the creation through human partners. God's not in it for himself. Uh, If you've ever been in a situation where you have been given responsibility and been given authority to do things, God shares his power. And so God, what he does is he, he wants human partners. And he starts with Adam and Eve. Those are the first two. And they also had a fork in the road kind of moment in the garden where there was a bad report that came through a serpent. If you haven't read it, check it out sometime. It's in Genesis 3. And so this bad report came in about God. And Adam and Eve decided instead of trusting God, they turned away. So what ended up happening was this turning away, if you read the story, it only intensifies over time. So it starts with, we're going to eat this fruit that God said not to eat. And it keeps building, and it keeps growing. By the time you get a few chapters into the Bible, you have a brother killing a brother. You have men taking multiple wives. You have a complete, a complete inversion of the the initial call to trust God. So what happens here in Numbers is a replay of what actually happened in the garden. Check out how this works. Let's go to Numbers 14, verses 1 to 12. This is their fork in the road moment. Just like I was in that room, in my college dorm, in a fork in the road, a hard, scary, vulnerable, kind of overwhelming choice was in front of me. This is what Israel was facing. And this is how they responded. The response is everything. It's all about how we respond in these situations. And the whole community broke out into loud cries. Numbers 14, verses 1 to 12. The community broke out into loud cries. Now, real quick, if you've read the story, you know that 
Israel crying out to God is not always a bad thing. It can be a very good thing, right? God responds to Israel's cries in Egypt with deliverance. But not every cry comes from a place of tenderness. It says the people wept that night. Verse 2, the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and our children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Woof. Epic fail. Absolutely epic fail. What are they saying? What are they asking to do? They're asking to undo their deliverance out of Egypt. They want to go back. This is tragic. Their circumstances were defining what they believed about God. I heard somebody say that this week, and I just like wrote it down right away. I said, that's amazing. Their circumstances define what they believed about God. And so they, they turned away. Now, I'm not going to read all this, but in the next few verses, Moses and Aaron fall face down, and then Joshua and Caleb, they're like, guys, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't rebel against God. Yes, the land is flowing with milk and honey. And then verse 9, it says, don't rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. They're not going to devour us. We're going to devour them. Why? Because their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid. And then it says the whole community threatened to stone them. So you understand, you know, contextually what that's about, you would stone apostates. So the people who are apostatizing, committing apostasy, want to inflict the punishment of apostasy on those who are being faithful. And that will happen. You follow the Lord long enough, there's going to be people that want to kill you, even though you're faithful. It happened to Jesus. It'll happen to you. It'll happen to me. So faith is risky. I think Tom actually prayed this this morning. Like Faith is actually risky. So Joshua and Caleb were exercising faith. And what did it get them? They nearly killed them. They nearly killed them. What was going on underneath? I think the people were just saying, like, I don't want to do what you want me to do. I don't want to go where you want me to go. There's, there's a, this is like a huge moment in the life of Israel. The, the only moment that I know of that compares to this one to this point is the golden calf incident. And if you're not familiar with that, that was a moment where Moses, the leader of Israel, had gone up a mountain to be with God, and the people had stayed back. This is after God had delivered them. And they get impatient and waiting. They just don't want to wait around anymore. So what do they do? They start, they have, they have Aaron mold them a calf that they can worship. And as I was thinking about it, it kind of reminded me of a time in my life when I was 15 and I didn't have my license yet and my parents were gone one night. It's sort of like when mom and dad are gone, what do you do kind of moment. And when mom and dad were gone and I was 15 and I didn't have a license yet, I did what everybody who's that age who's home alone probably wants to do, which is to take the car out for a spin, right? Anybody ever done that before? Yep. Okay. I see a few hands. I see you. 
Yeah, so that's what I did. I just couldn't wait anymore. I just couldn't help myself. I just went for it. And it was exhilarating. It was so exciting. I went around the neighborhood, I think, once. And I was like, this isn't so bad. And then I did it again. I was driving a 92 Volvo with like 75 horsepower. Had a great time. Then by the time I got back into the house, I was so, I had so much nervous energy that instead of hitting the brake, I hit the gas. And then I went through the, through the garage wall. <laughs> Thankfully, there was a shoe rack there. And so I hit the shoe rack, but that went through the wall. I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. So Israel had one of those moments of like just crazy impatience where they couldn't wait and they ruined everything. And they proved themselves to be unfaithful and unwilling to wait. This is a slightly different moment. The one that we're reading right now is more like Israel essentially being in the car. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where it's like, I'll drive, thank you. Anybody have one of those moments? Nobody else? Okay. So that was one of those moments where they're like, okay, I'll drive, Lord. I don't like where we're going. I don't like the, the direction that you're taking us. I don't like the journey. It's kind of scary. It's frightening. For me, it's like driving the Ortega Highway. I'll take the long way. I'll do the 91 all day to avoid that. Worst freeway in America. I choose that instead of the Ortega Highway. Because I don't, I don't want to take that route. And there's something like that happening. There's a taking of the wheel and turning things around. That's what's happening here. So impatience, and then ultimately what it's showing, it's revealing, it's a lack of trust. So then what happened? God shows up. The glory of the Lord appeared, and things don't necessarily get better. Verse 11, Numbers 14 14.11 says, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will not trust in me despite all the signs I have performed? And he had done many. There were 10 epic ones in Egypt. If you've never read it, you can check it out later, the 10 plagues, or these 10 signs and wonders. And there was a bunch more. God had given them water in the wilderness. He had given them bread from heaven, like literally. What was that one time, the snow that we got here in Temecula? What was that called? The little frozen? No. Snow, that's right. There was snow here in Temecula that one time. It's not technically snow. It's like snow that ice has melted, has crystallized around. That's not it. No, all of these are wrong. But there was, like that one time when it snowed in Temecula, God made bread snow from heaven, like rain down from heaven, Okay. That felt like a sign to me. It's snowing in the desert. I don't know how you guys felt about that. But God did, it's a, he, 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 rumble, rumble, rumble. That doesn't sound real either. <laughs> you guys can Google this later. It's grapple. Uh, but it was a sign. And God sent bread from heaven when they were hungry. Okay, so it's not like they were without knowledge or without understanding. They just didn't want what God had to offer. And so God said, okay, I'm going to strike them with a plague and destroy them. This is pretty intense stuff. But I think it reveals that God's not arbitrary. He's not cruel. I think it reveals the depths of the rebellion that's taking place. Because at the fork in the road moment, they turn back. And then he says, Moses, I'm going to make you into a greater and mightier nation than they are. 
And I'm not going to read this, but Moses responds in the next six verses with the most incredible response you could ever imagine. Moses tells, tells the Lord, you are gracious, slow to anger, faithful. If people in Egypt hear about this, this is not going to reflect well on you. Please pardon the iniquity of this people in keeping with the greatness of your faithful love, just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. Numbers 14, 20 to 25, the Lord responds and says, okay. Nobody else is like, I have pardoned them as you've requested. Stop. If you ever hear anybody say that the God of the Old Testament is some wrathful, vengeful, wrong. Just wrong. Yes, he has wrath. Yes, there's vengeance. But his impulse is to forgive, to be slow to anger, to be slow to inflict the punishment that we deserve. It's amazing. This is really meaningful to me because that night that I was at the college dorm in this fork in the road moment, I basically did what every aspiring pastor should do, which is to go for the girl. And turn away from God. That's what I did. I'd like to tell you, like, yeah, I did the right thing. I didn't. I turned away from God. I failed my test in college. I failed. And what ended up happening was there was consequences for it. Now, in Numbers 14, if we keep reading, the Lord says, I have pardoned them, but there are consequences. The consequences for me were that I spent the next several years wandering. I went into a wilderness. The conversation that I began with my college roommate never completed. I was talking to him about God. I was entering into discipleship without even knowing what I was doing. It stopped. It dried up instantly. It dried up immediately. I actually started to have, I can't get into it now, but I started to have like these physical manifestations, I think, of my inner turmoil. I started like, I couldn't sleep at night. I started to have all kinds of stuff going on. A lot of fear. A lot of worry. A lot of anxiety. So in hindsight, I do believe God can pardon, but the consequences for that time remained. I wasn't fruitful in that season of life. Quote number one, if you guys can throw that up. Sometimes the consequences of sin and and rebellion are irreversible, and one must endure the experience of God's judgment before a new course of action brings blessing. The people in that wilderness generation didn't go into the promised land. They were forgiven, but they fell under judgment. Even if those consequences endure for a lifetime, we must continue in faith so that our lives reflect redemption, not further reproach. For me, that meant that in my college years, I didn't make an impact on any of my friends. And I stopped trying at a certain point. I just didn't care anymore. My heart was cold and hardened toward God, and I ran away from Christians, (laughs) like hard. I'm going to have to cut some of this stuff out. I have so much more, there's so much more to go through. 
but I just don't have time. What ends up happening to the Israelites, I'll summarize it really briefly, is that they realize they've made a terrible mistake. Once the consequences are clear, they're like, oh, no, 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 we were wrong. And then they made up their minds and they decided we're going to go take the country now. We're ready. And God said, (laughs) Moses told them, why are you going against the Lord's command? It's not going to work. God is not among you, and you're going to be defeated. The people try anyway, and they get slaughtered. They get slaughtered by the Amalekites and the Canaanites. Their fears actually came true. Isn't that the craziest part about fear? The very thing that we get really worried about and concerned about and that dominates us actually becomes true. We're working on this with one of my kids, where they're just like constantly worried about, how long has it been since I got in bed? They're like struggling to fall asleep, and they're just fearful of not being able to fall asleep, and they get out of bed and they start asking questions about, how long have I been in bed? It's like, do you know this isn't working, right? (laughs) You're literally bringing about the thing that you fear through fear. And you've been in bed for 30 seconds. Get back in there. (laughs) I want to share with you quickly four observations that I've made spending six weeks in numbers. Are you ready for this? All right, can we throw up the how to turn away from God in a trial slide? Four things. Okay, I'm just going to share it with you. Number one, if you're a note taker, write this down. Focus on problems. Focusing on your problems isn't bad by any means, but what I'm talking about is like the kind of focus where you can't see anything else. Do you know what I'm talking about? You just don't see anything else. It's kind of like the Jurassic Park scene where they're driving away from the T-Rex, but all you can see in the rearview mirror is what? The T-Rex, right? So it's like focusing on your problems to the point where you can't see anything else. Number one. Number two, this is how you turn away from God in a trial. This is how you wind up turning away from God in a trial. Focusing on your problems. This is exactly what happened to me This is why I turned from God in that trial in college was actually I couldn't see the possibility that I might be okay if I didn't have this person in my life. All I thought about was like, I'm going to be alone. It's scary. Uh, I don't know how to be alone. That's all I thought about. That's all I focused on. It's going to cost me everything. My problems just took up all of my line of sight. That was the first, that's one of the first things that happens prior to turning away from God. Second thing is to forget God's past faithfulness, okay? Forget God's past faithfulness. Now, this is really important because this is what Israel did. There it is. Forget God's past faithfulness. Thank you, guys, in the back. Forgetting God's past faithfulness is what Israel did. Israel had seen signs and wonders over and over again. And in that moment, they didn't draw on any of them. They didn't. This happens to me primarily in my life around finances, Uh, I I don't know why this is, but God has literally taken care of us 100% of the time, and this is where I forget 100% of the time. Again, fork in the roads, trials, there's a moment of decision, yes, God, or no, and it's very easy to forget about God's past faithfulness if our problems are dominating our line of sight. The third thing you do is you follow faithless counsel. 
So this is its own message. Mike actually preached it. It was great out of the Psalms. The people that you hang out with or the voices that are in your ears can have an outsized influence on your decision making. So what, what, how did this show up in, in the story that we re- just read? The 10 spies. The 10 spies were faithless. How do I know that? Because God killed them with a plague. (laughs) And they led the people into apostasy. That's probably the bigger one. One of the things that uh, has never ceased to amaze me about that, that trial that I faced in college was that there was a voice that I listened to. It just wasn't the Lord's. I followed faithless counsel because it looked good and because it felt good. And one of the things that I read, man, I can't, this is why I can't spend six weeks chewing on one part of the scripture because I will talk for an hour or eight. This pack will last for eight hours actually, it's confirmed, (laughs) but we don't have time. One of the things that that the commentators note is that Israel really should have known better when those spies came around. They should have known better because they've seen what God can do. And for me in my life, I had already, even though I had basically very little Bible knowledge, I had heard story after story after story from adults and from peers about the difference that God makes in difficult, painful situations and how I can have hope. I had heard all that, but I didn't listen to them. I listened to what I wanted to hear, and I turned. And I think we find ourselves in situations like that regularly and often, because God in his kindness has given us, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's giving you the church, among other things, to be counsel for you. That's why, one of the reasons why I think it's so beneficial, so safe to make big decisions in community not for control's sake. It's not to control anyone. It's literally so that you can check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) One of the things I didn't do was talk to anybody in college about what I was facing. I handled it all on my own and it led me into wilderness. Number four, lastly, form a new plan. The people of Israel they, made, they, they did all these things, and then the last thing they did was they formed a new plan. The first plan was make a U-turn and go back for Egypt. And God was like, I'm not going to let you do that. So they're like, all right, well, we're going we're to take the land. We're going to take the land. And they got slaughtered. They got routed. Routed? Yeah. Yep, thank you. They got routed. It's that like, I'll drive, thank you, I'm making a U-turn. Actually, I'm just kidding, we're going to make another U-turn. It's... It's confusing, it's dizzying to be led by your feelings. It's dizzying. And fear. Ultimately, what's deep down underneath all this is fear. It's the fear that the Lord will not come through for us. Okay, quote number two, very quickly. This is about Israel. This is John Seelhammer, a Bible commentator. He said, not only do they fail to trust God to give them the land, but in desperation, they attempt to take it on their own. Their unbelief is manifested by their attempts to gain God's blessings apart from him. Turning away in a trial leads to tragedy. 
Turning away in a trial leads to tragedy. This is what it means to be human. I mentioned earlier Adam and Eve. This is what it means to be human. It's to turn away from God, to take matters into our own hands, and then to suffer the consequences. That's what happened to me in college. It's happened to probably everybody in this room at one point or another. Let me tell you about a different kind of human. Let's go to Matthew 4, 1 to 4. This is Jesus' trial. Jesus was a true Israelite. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, how do you think you would feel? Hangry. He was just hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones to become bread. Verse 4, he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, for you, you might be like, what, what in the world is happening there? Jesus had the kind of power to meet his needs instantly. He could have done it. He could have shortened, he could have taken a shortcut, he could have avoided suffering and pain, and he could have shown, yeah, I am the son of God, watch this. I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make sourdough bread out of this giant 500 pound rock, watch this. You know, like he could have done that. And he was hungry. I don't know, I don't, I, I, I've never fasted nearly long enough to understand what this is like. I know that there's some people that do fast sometimes for 40 days, I've never done it. But I can't imagine the weakness, the kind of tricks that your mind's gonna play on you, the, all of that. Not to mention it's woven into his identity. He has the power, he can do it. But God has just not said yes yet, right? What did Jesus, what made Jesus different? Quote number four. Father God, God the Father, can be trusted to know the needs of his people and meet them. Jesus found this truth in his scriptures, proved it in the testing of his own experience, and was very soon teaching it to his followers. That's Christopher J.H. Wright. In other words, Jesus learned to trust in a trial in a few ways, and I'm just gonna run through them really quickly, just for the sake of time. How to trust in a trial. Jesus, the true human. There's four things that I've picked up on Jesus through his life, through this, this uh, specific passage and looking at other parts of his life. In comparison to Israel, in comparison to fallen humanity, one of the things that Jesus did was he feasted on God's word. What he did was quote Deuteronomy. Anybody in a tough day quote Deuteronomy from memory? That's what Jesus did. He had internalized his, the word of God to such a point where he knew the instant the temptation came, oh, here's what he's trying to get me to do. That part of Deuteronomy talks about the word of God being enough. It was about learning to depend on God when you're hungry. When you're deprived, you learn to depend. Jesus internalized that. He fought that temptation to take matters into his own hands and turn away from God. 
His highest priority and aim was to please God, not to avoid pain, not to shorten his suffering, not to shortcut the process that God had him in. And last but not least, he followed the Lord's counsel. He waited. He waited. And that, in a nutshell, is what makes Jesus so compelling to me. So compelling. I couldn't see beyond my problems. And oftentimes, I can't see what God is doing. Oftentimes, I can't see how this might actually be a good thing for me, this trial that I'm in. I can't see how he's developing me. I can't see that this is part of his discipline. But Jesus saw all of it. He had clarity of sight even facing a, a situation that was far bigger and worse than anything I'll ever face. So I think what Jesus' life shows us is that trusting in a trial leads to triumph. Jesus' life was a life of triumph. But he was tested, and he suffered terribly in the process. So, okay, so why, why is this important? Why does this matter? When I was... kind of at the depths of despair, uh, after I had turned away from God in my trial, I went into a wilderness wandering for several years. And I remember one day having this distinct thought, what if there's still hope for me? What if there's still a chance for me? I was driving past a church and the, the thought just kind of sparked. What if there's hope for me? To make a long story short, I've come to realize now in hindsight that there was always hope for me. Because Jesus, part of what he was doing in this life, by trusting, by actually being the, the true human that we can never be, is that he made himself the perfect high priest that we need. And if you're like, what does that mean? Well, check this out. Hebrews 7, 23 to 26. says, we have become, now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. So there was this priesthood under the old covenant that kept going, that people kept dying, so it was a bit of a problem. But Jesus remains forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Here's what I've learned. Jesus, in my worst moments, was interceding for me, for the unfaithful human. And because he was a priest who lives forever, it wasn't just like, oh, you can be forgiven, Herrick. It's, yeah, you can be forgiven. It was so much more. It's that he literally lives to intercede for me so that when I'm at my worst, he's at the Father petitioning for me. When I'm at my worst, when I'm in the depth of my trial, he is crying out on my behalf, even when I had no words for it. So what I discovered was a God that as soon as I came to him, he welcomed me fully, completely. And he has a sense of humor, because here I am now. Telling about his, about his kindness, telling about his mercy, even though I didn't do any of the things Jesus did. How does that work? <laughs> his work has to have been applied to me. The forgiveness, the cleansing, the renewal, inwardly, and then the restoration of relationship back to God. Because I've, I've experienced the warmest welcome you could ever imagine from God, even though 
I'm so unfaithful and so undeserving. Jesus trusted in his trial and it's led to triumph for you and me. But now he's not, it's not done. Now we actually get to learn to trust in a trial too. And I know that, like looking around the room, I know there's tons of people going through difficult situations, whether it's relationally, financially, uh, in your marriage, in your singleness, in whatever the case may be. And I just want you to know that Jesus can save completely those who come to the Father through him. He is faithful, completely faithful. So I want to invite you to stand up. I'm going to call the band up. So here's what I want to here's what I want to land on. We got about 15 minutes before we got to wrap. If you're going through a trial right now, again, a trial is a hard, scary, vulnerable, overwhelming situation that's caused you to come to a fork in the road. You're in a test, whether you realize it or not. And I think the promise that Jesus holds out for us today is that he can, he can get you through that trial. All you gotta do is learn how to trust him through it. I'm not saying that that's easy. I am saying it's simple though, because oftentimes it's like trust or turn away. Those are the two choices that you have. If there's anything in you that even has like an inkling of desire to turn to him, you have to know that he has been interceding for you and the Father hears his prayers. So you can turn to him in whatever you're facing. I wanna pray really quickly. I'm gonna hand it off to Tom so you can set up a response time. Uh, Father, I wanna thank you. There's people in this room who are going through trials right now. They're being tempted to turn away from you, but also potentially being drawn to turn to you in risky ways because faith always involves risk. I thank you that you know them and you love them in ways that I don't and can't. I think you have, the, you have the power to save completely those who come to you through him. I thank you that you live to intercede for us. And I pray that today, whatever that looks like for each person, that we would learn what it looks like to take that next step of trust to you. I pray that you would save people from going through what I did, which is to like take a look at the promised land and then turn away from it. To gaze at it and then nope, it's safer back here. Because the truth is safety is probably overrated in your kingdom by us. But faith is dramatically underrated. Risk is dramatically underrated that that's where the reward is. So Father, we thank you. I pray for this time that you have your way and even in this response.